This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So first of all, for those of you who are unfamiliar, let me briefly describe what paid family leave is. As the name suggests, the policy provides um, paid leave, either fully or partially replacing an employee's wages while they're out. In some cases, it also guarantees job protection, which means that if an employee is out, their employer can't fire them. And the idea behind it is that it gives uh, people time to care for themselves and their families, uh, often due to a health condition. So most people who use it are new parents after the adoption or birth of a child, and it does provide time for infant parent bonding and social support for the new parents. More generally, it's intended to support families to cope with illness or a health condition more generally. The case studies that I'm going to cover today are going to focus on the case where paid family leave is being used for new parents. Um, and, you know, as uh, Dr. Kaufman mentioned, these days there's a lot of talk on the use of this for people who have uh, health conditions or illness. And I'm not going to get as much into that. Sadly, I've been preparing these slides for a couple of weeks and the situation has changed so quickly. I haven't had time to add anything on this other use of paid leave, but hopefully this should still provide some insight into the, uh, into the effects of these policies. So the reason some of you may not have heard of this policy, if you haven't heard of it, is because the U.S. actually does not have a national paid family leave policy. It's the only high-income country and one of only a handful of countries worldwide that has no such policy in place. As you can see in this figure, uh, most European countries provide at least six months of leave, if not a year. And currently, in not offering paid family leave, we are keeping company with Suriname, Papua New Guinea, and a handful of Pacific islands that don't show up on this map. Um, so we're, we're quite unique in that respect. So what does the U.S. have? The U.S. has what's known as the U.S. Family and Medical Leave Act, and this provides unpaid leave for qualifying workers. It is job protected, meaning people can't be fired while they're out. Uh, it's about 12 weeks of leave. However, more than 40% of employees in the U.S. actually don't qualify, uh, in part because eligibility is determined by the number of hours you work or the size of your employer, so, so um, most, uh, many people can't actually take advantage of it. And studies have also shown that low-income workers are less likely to take advantage of the leave, uh, perhaps because they simply can't afford to take unpaid time off of work. So uh, again, we're going to focus a little bit more on parents today, but this picture shows the leave arrangements for working mothers in the U.S. So as a result of the current policy landscape, about half of moms, which is the pink bar, take paid leave. And that's, uh, you know, I said there was no national federal, uh, national paid family leave policy, but there are a handful of state policies, and most often people get this benefit through their employers. Uh, then about 10% take disability leave. About 20% uh, quit their jobs, about 40% take unpaid leave, and then about 5% are actually let go from their jobs. So this adds up to more than 100% because some people use more than one of these options. And what we next do is we break this down by educational attainment. So this next group of bars is for those with less than a high school education, and this last group of bars is for those with a bachelor's degree or more. 
So you'll see that those with less than the high school education are much less likely to have paid leave, uh, often because their employers don't cover it. Uh, they're less likely to take disability leave. They're um, quite likely to take unpaid leave. If you see about twice as many actually quit their jobs, about 50%, and 10% of people are let go from their job when they uh, take leave due to a pregnancy. And then if you look among people with a bachelor's degree or more, the inverse is true. They're more likely to have um, paid leave and are less likely to quit or be let go from their job. So we're all here today because presumably we're interested in health. So next, let's take a look at all the ways that paid family leave policy is hypothesized to affect a family's health. So here on this side, we have the exposure we're interested in, which is paid family leave policy. And here are all the ways that it might affect health. So first of all, compared to unpaid leave, it provides income to families, again, either through partial or full wage replacement. And so um, especially for families who are vulnerable, this might uh, enable them to purchase more healthy food or more food. It might improve household resources and housing, it might give them more access to health care uh, and the ability to uh, afford medications. Uh, the knowledge that you have a more steady stream of income uh, could also improve your mental health. And of course, healthcare access um, has the potential to improve your mental health. The other thing paid family leave policy does is it gives people time off to seek that social support. Uh, and that's especially true for things like mental health in the, after the birth or adoption of a child. And then also for breastfeeding, which for those who have gone through it is a complicated process um, where the ability to connect with others is really important. The other thing paid family leave does is time for bonding uh, with the new child, with the, with the spouse or partner, and those also have the potential to improve mental health and breastfeeding. All of these pathways together have the potential to improve the child's health. And then also paid family leave policy uh, provides people with the opportunity to take care of themselves instead of rushing back to work, which has the possibility of improving uh, lots of downstream health conditions. Um, which we can get into a bit later. So uh, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about two case studies today. So the first one is looking at the effects of paid family leave policy on breastfeeding. So why is breastfeeding important? Uh, there have been many studies that have shown that breastfeeding is associated with a lower risk of obesity for moms and also less obesity and metabolic problems for children who have been breastfed later in their lives. Breastfeeding also improves infant-parent bonding, so family dynamics, and it's also been shown to reduce behavioral problems in kids. One study, for example, has shown that paid family, or sorry, there have been a handful of studies that have shown that people who take paid leave um, have improvements in breastfeeding. Um, those are usually people who've taken paid leave because their employer offers it. Um, and so in the U.S., what the uh, Academy, American Academy of Pediatrics recommends is that children are exclusively breastfed for six months and that there is continued breastfeeding for 12 months with the supplementation of uh, solids. So the problem or the complicating factor here is that 60% of women with small children in the U.S. are employed. And what happens in the U.S. is that a quarter of women return to work after delivering in two weeks, and then a third return to work within three months. Uh, so just to put this into perspective, in Europe, about 5% of women return to work within three months because of that ability to take longer paid family leave. 
And it's known that women in full-time employment are less likely to breastfeed than those in part-time employment, and that returning to work earlier further reduces uh, breastfeeding rates, possibly because of the difficulties in uh, having time to spend with the infant, finding a place to pump, that sort of thing. So these all suggest that strategies to promote early breastfeeding are important. And the disparities that we see in paid family leave uh, or in, in taking leave may be one reason why we see such stark racial disparities in breastfeeding. So here you can see that uh, black women are less likely to initiate breastfeeding in the immediate postpartum period compared to white and Hispanic women. And that at um, six months postpartum, only a quarter of black women are still breastfeeding relative to about half of white and Hispanic women. But to put these patterns into context, it's helpful to look at employment trends. So while black women make up about 13% of the total labor force, they're disproportionately represented in low-wage jobs. So because of things like discrimination in employment or structural racism in access to education, black women are more likely to work in low-wage jobs that do not qualify for unpaid or paid leave. And that might be a major contributor to the breastfeeding patterns that we see here. So again, um, putting this into our um, uh, concept map that we looked at earlier, we think that paid family leave policy is likely to improve rates of breastfeeding by giving people the space to have social support and time for bonding. So I hinted earlier about the latest movements in this policy arena, which are state paid family leave policies. So individual states are passing laws to provide leave to new parents after the birth or adoption of a child. You can see here um, the color of the bars uh, indicates the number of weeks of leave available, and it ranges from four to 12 weeks. And they also vary in the amount of the worker's salary that's replaced while they're out. Most have um, wage replacement rates that are about half or two thirds of the employee's salary. But actually this policy landscape is changing so quickly, I couldn't find a map that had all states that have policies colored in, um, because just in the last year, Washington DC, Massachusetts, and Connecticut have also passed their own paid family leave policies. And these most recent policies actually have higher wage replacement rates, up to 95% in Connecticut for low wage workers. And California actually just passed changes to its policy. And um, here in California, we're gonna start offering eight weeks instead of six weeks starting this summer. And there's actually a proposal that would expand this to 12 to 16 weeks starting in 2021. So let's next take a look at how many people have benefited from this policy. And here we have California in particular. So um, in orange, we have the number of births per year in California since when the policy in California was first implemented, which was 2004. In 2005 is the first year that we have complete data on the policy. Um, so you can see that the number of births in California is about half a million, although it's been uh, slowly declining over time. And here you can see in the blue line, that this is the total number of paid family leave or PFL claims that have been paid. And you can see that even as birth rates are declining, the number of claims paid every year is increasing. We should keep in mind though, this doesn't mean that you know, half of um, births in California are receiving paid family leave um, since claims that are paid can include both parents, including birth parents or same-sex parents or adoptive or foster parents. Um, and some of these claims may even represent caring for family outside of the context of a new child, although most are related to uh, a new child. 
But what this does indicate is that this program is increasingly being used by families. So the case study that I'll be presenting here took advantage of the passage of these state policies to examine the question, what are the effects of these state paid family leave policies on breastfeeding practices? So since most of these state policies have been passed very recently, this study focuses on uh, two slightly earlier policies whose effects can more easily be measured. As I mentioned, California's policy passed in 2004 and New Jersey's policy passed in 2009. And this study also looked at whether effects are different among different socio-demographic subgroups to see whether these policies affect everybody similarly. It used data from the National Immunization Survey on about 300,000 moms. And the survey just happens to also ask questions about breastfeeding. So in this case, the analytic method we used was a technique called difference and differences analysis, and you do not have to understand the slide to understand the results, but I'm going to share it for those who are interested in how this research is, uh, is done. So to do that, let's take a look at this figure. So this is sort of stylized for now and not based on the actual study results. This is just to help understand the method itself. Um, so here we have time. This is the pre-policy period, and this is after the policy has been implemented, and you can put whatever, you know, health health condition you want here on the, the y-axis, so they'll say this is breastfeeding. Um, and so during the months before the policy is implemented, ideally we'd like to see that paid family leave states, California and New Jersey, have similar trends in, their, um, in health to the other states. Uh, importantly, the prevalence of the conditions doesn't have to be the same. The breastfeeding rates don't have to be the same. They just, the trends in them have to be parallel during this period. Then after the policy is implemented, let's say that we observe uh, this pattern for the two groups. Um, so this analysis essentially assumes that the rates in California and New Jersey would have stayed parallel to those in all the other states. And so this difference between the observed and the actual is the treatment effect that's due to the policy implementation. If that didn't make any sense, just forget this slide and you'll still be able to understand the results that I'm about to present. So these are the main results, and this illustrates the effect of the policy on uh, each of the different breastfeeding practices. And the ones that we looked at include whether the mother ever breastfed, whether she was still exclusively breastfeeding the child at three months and at six months, whether she was breastfeeding the child at all, even including solid supplementation at six months and 12 months, as well as the total duration of breastfeeding and the duration of exclusive breastfeeding. So if you look at this overall sample, um, well, let me also explain how to uh, take a look at these graphs. So if we, so the effects that we're looking at are these black dots, and if they're close to this zero line, then that means that we don't really see an effect. So the, um, the breastfeeding practice that we see the biggest effect for is uh, exclusively breastfeeding at um, six months. And we see that there's a 1.3 percentage point increase in the likelihood of this breastfeeding practice. And we also see that breastfeeding at six and 12 months is also uh, maybe a little bit more common after these policies passed. We don't see any effects on people um, ever breastfeeding um, or on breastfeeding duration. However, um, when we next looked at the different subgroup effects, um, we saw that these effects in the overall sample masked some important um, findings among the subgroups. So this is the same graph, but now we're looking at each outcome by itself. So this is ever breastfed, uh, and the groups that we're looking at are comparing married and not married moms, comparing moms of different racial backgrounds, comparing moms with different household incomes, and those of different ages. And so again, 
Um, being around zero means that this is the reference group. So here we can see that people who are married, breastfed at about the same rates of those who are unmarried. Um, and again, not much difference by race. Uh, we see that these bars sort of overlap with the line zero. Where we do see a difference is that those with higher household income were more likely to increase rates of breastfeeding uh, compared to lower income moms. And um, uh, another important thing to note is that if we see a negative value, like here among black women, it doesn't mean that black women um, breastfed less in response to the policy. It just means that they benefited less from the policy compared to the reference group, which is white women. So when we look at exclusive breastfeeding at three months, in this case, we see that married women benefited more than unmarried women. And then again, middle and high income women were much more likely to benefit than low income women. Now this is looking at exclusive breastfeeding at six months. We again see more advantages for married women, uh, in this case also for Hispanic women. And then uh, also again, advantages for middle income women compared to low income women, although in this case, not as much for high income women. When we look at whether women were still breastfeeding at six months, again, we see those benefits for married women. And again, um, those benefits for middle and high income women. In this case, it looked like maybe uh, black moms were benefiting slightly less than white moms. And then when we look at breastfeeding duration, um, the biggest effects that we see here, are again, that um, middle and high income moms were more likely to, uh, to have longer breastfeeding duration by about uh, 17 to 25 days longer than the reference group of low income women. And in this case, again, um, uh, black women were less likely to benefit than white women and younger women were less likely to benefit than older women. And when we look again at the duration of exclusive breastfeeding, Again, those benefits for married women, and again, those benefits for middle and high income women. So I just barraged you with a bunch of results, so let me summarize the findings. Um, so first, we see that there's increased breastfeeding at six months when we just look at the sample overall. So this is consistent with one other U.S. study that's examined this question, as well as a handful of international studies that suggest that paid family leave policies do increase breastfeeding. And while the California and New Jersey policies only provide paid leave for six weeks, the thought is that maybe they're supporting parents in the early weeks of breastfeeding when it's crucial to have time and support to keep up the practice, and that's what allows them to still be breastfeeding at six months. The thing that prior studies haven't done is examine these uh, differential effects among different subgroups. And this study showed consistently larger benefits for high-income women and married women, and some inconsistent findings for different racial, ethnic, and age subgroups depending on the outcome, depending on the breastfeeding practice. So one possible implication of this work is that these policies are actually increasing health disparities by disproportionately benefiting women who are already advantaged. It might be that low-income women are still not able to benefit from the policy because it only covers part of their wages. Again, we said these policies cover 50% to two-thirds of women's wages. And so low-income women would rather get right back to work than take the time off. And importantly, California's policy actually doesn't provide job protection. So women may still be worried that they'll lose their jobs if they take advantage of the benefit and they're not also eligible for that U.S. Family and Medical Leave Act that does protect their jobs. And this study highlights how it's important to be very thoughtful about the design of policies to keep health equity in mind.
All right, so now let's move on to the second case study. And this one examined how paid family leave policy affects different aspects of parent health. So let's take a look at our concept map again. This time we'll be examining parents' mental health as well as uh, overall health, smoking, alcohol use, and obesity. And again, the reason we think paid family leave policy matters for that is the ability, it's, it's um, ability to provide people time to get social support and bonding after the birth or adoption of a new child and the ability to take care of themselves uh, instead of getting straight back to work. So thinking just about mental health, the most common mental health condition for uh, moms in particular after the birth of the baby is postpartum depression. And um, this debilitating condition actually affects one in seven women. And what a lot of people don't know is that it actually um, depression affects one in 12 men after the birth of a new child. So it's common for both parents. We know that postpartum depression is bad for kids. It's associated with worse depression among kids later in life, worse cognition, more likely, uh, a greater likelihood of having conduct disorder, as well as worse physical health. And then we know in general that having poor mental health among adults is also um, associated with worse physical health, including higher risk of smoking, alcohol use, and obesity. So this suggests that preventing postpartum depression and improving parents' mental health during the postpartum period is important. And lucky for us, there are studies that suggest that each additional week of leave among moms is associated with a reduction in the odds of postpartum depression, so that paid family leave policy might be a good policy to tackle these uh, health issues. So in this study, um, the research question was, what are the effects of these state paid family leave policies on parental health? the same policies I discussed before. Uh, in this case, we only examined the California policy since we didn't have enough of a sample to look at New Jersey, uh, sample size, enough people in our sample to look at New Jersey or other more recent states who'd passed these policies. And in this case, we looked at how the effects differed for uh, moms versus dads. And the sample that we used here was uh, 7,000 people from um, a study known as the Panel Study of Income Dynamics. And we use that same difference and differences design that I described earlier. So here are the effects that we observe for this study. So here a positive number means more of something and the negative number means less of something. And the star that you see means that this association was strong enough that we think it was statistically significant. So we see that California's paid family leave policy improved overall health, reduced psychological distress, reduced the risk of parents being overweight, and reduced alcohol use. Now we next looked at whether the effects were the same for moms versus dads. And here we see that overall health improved for both, although this number is bigger, so the effect was more prominent among moms than it was among dads. The reductions in psychological distress were mostly among moms and, and not quite as large for dads. Uh, similarly, the reductions in being overweight were larger for moms than for dads. And meanwhile, the reductions in alcohol use, drinking any alcohol or drinking three or more drinks a day, uh, that reduction was bigger among dads. So again, to summarize these findings, we see improved overall health for both parents. And this might be the result of the fact that paid family leave policy provides more money and more time for parents to be at home with their new child. We also see the reduced risk of overweight among moms. We had already seen that paid family leave increases breastfeeding. Um, so it might be that um, the, the ability to have more time for breastfeeding uh, reduces the risk of overweight among moms, or it might be that moms have more time to take care of themselves 
eating healthy and, and exercising rather than rushing back to work. And finally, we see this combination of less psychological distress for moms and less alcohol use for dads. And we know that there are gender differences in the experience of stress and mental health and that alcohol use is more common among men. So these both may be manifestations of improved mental health among parents. So these studies have a couple of limitations that I wanted to touch on um, to sort of get ahead of some of the questions you might have in this area. So neither of the data sets that we used for either of these studies includes questions on actual leave taking or eligibility for leave. Most studies don't ask those kinds of questions. Um, so these uh, um, results that I showed, you might actually be understating or underestimating the policy's impact because paid family leave is for working parents only and the samples that we examined here include ineligible families as well. So those are sort of being uh, mushed in and potentially making the effects look not as strong as they would have been otherwise. Second, this analysis, as I mentioned, doesn't include those states with more recently implemented paid family leave policies since we don't have data yet on those most recent years. Again, some of these policies were just passed in the last year or two. Uh, and this means that the results might not generalize to these other states. And importantly, it may not reflect the effects of policies that have longer leave or more generous wage replacement. A lot of these more recent policies provide 8, 10, 12 weeks of leave. And as we showed, um, up to 95% wage replacement, especially for low-income workers. So the same issues that we saw earlier about health disparities for the California and New Jersey policies might not be the case, uh, although that still needs to be looked at. And finally, the type of analysis that we did uh, assumes that there were no other policy changes that happened right at the same time as the paid family leave policy um, that would have affected these same health conditions. And we can't totally rule that out. Um, so it's possible that some other policy got passed at the same time as paid family leave, and that's what explaining the differences in breastfeeding or these other mental health outcomes. Um, although we have sort of ways to test for that that, that I'm not gonna get into. Um, but we can't ever totally rule out the fact that that's what's explaining the results. So there have been a handful of other studies that have looked at the effects of these paid family leave policies um, on maternal and, um, and uh, paternal health. And I, I talked a little bit about those as I went along. And there have been others that have looked at the health of uh, children whose parents benefited from these policies later in childhood. Uh, so this is just a snapshot of those results. These show that there's um, reductions in abusive head trauma among these kids. Um, again, the thought is that the parents are less stressed, um, there's less tension, there's less economic distress um, to reduce the uh, rates of abusive head trauma. These kids are also less likely to be overweight, less likely to have ADHD, less likely to have hearing problems, so that the implementation of these policies may be having downstream uh, positive effects on kids later in life. So uh, to conclude, what we see is that paid family leave might be an important lever to improve both infant and parent health at the population level, um, not just one-on-one. -on -one. So for clinicians, doctors, or other providers, one implication might be to involve a social worker or other team member who can help new parents navigate the benefits for which they're eligible. And for everyone, it means um, working to ensure the passage of paid leave policies by either employers, cities, states, the federal government. There's a lot of actors here who could might benefit from this evidence. 
There is a possibility that the state policies in California and New Jersey as currently implemented um, may be exacerbating disparities, especially in that study of breastfeeding practices. And it may be that more disadvantaged groups still can't take advantage of the leave because it's partially paid and that low-income families simply can't get by on just half or two-thirds of their salaries. So again, these, uh, with these latest state policies, it'll be important to look at those and see the effects that those are having. And uh, especially in the context of the discussions just in the last few days, um, there's really not much research um, on how paid family leave policies uh, are used and affect health conditions beyond birth. So when people, people can also take paid family leave to care for an elderly parent or a sick family member. And there's just very little work that's been done in that arena. Um, just in the last couple of days, I was trying to update these slides to see if there's anything I could find. Um, and there's not a lot of work done in that area. And I think that's something, especially now that a lot of people are gonna be interested in, and hopefully this will, you know, this conversation will spur researchers and policymakers to gather that evidence. So I just wanted to acknowledge some of my collaborators on this work at UCSF, San Francisco State, and the University of Pennsylvania, as well as the funding for this work. And I wanna thank all of you guys for your attention and your patience um, with working on this platform uh, on Zoom and I'm happy to take any questions. So we have one question here. Uh, do any studies show the effects of cultural or attitudinal differences, if any, among white, black, and Hispanic women regarding their desire to breastfeed, which would affect the benefit they attain from the policies or their likelihood to utilize the available benefit? I mean, I think there, there are, that, that's not, exactly what I study, although I've delved into that a little bit just in writing these papers. And I think there are papers that have tried to look at how people's cultural background affects how they um, perceive breastfeeding, although a lot of that is just tied to the, you know, if, if, if your family or your um, people of your racial background just historically aren't able to, to even have the time to access that benefit because, you know, many people are in those low-wage jobs, I think that shifts culture. Um, um, so that so that even the availability of the policy affects the culture, and it's certainly po possible um, that people's cultural background also affects um, their breastfeeding practices. So I'd say that it goes both ways, and I think there's not a great study that teases apart which which is the is the predominating pathway there. All right, let's see. So another question: Has paid family leave been studied as it relates to benefits to business, such as employee retention or returning to work healthier? Does the business world see this mostly as another employment cost they begrudge? So that probably depends a lot on who you talk to. There have definitely been economic studies that show that um, paid family leave makes women in particular uh, more likely to go back to work um, in the year or two after um, a kid's birth. And you can imagine that that means that you don't have to retrain new workers. Um, that's good for the workforce. Um, and there's certainly, you know, the, again, this is a conversation we have a lot in this country, um, and depending on where your values lie or, or how you perceive the evidence, um, people, people see the costs of providing the paid leave um, as outweighing the health benefits or vice versa. Um, importantly, what happens in a lot of other countries is that employers aren't the one that shoulder the costs. It's uh, often, most often, a government-provided benefit. Um, and, you know, that might shift how employers perceive it. Um, so that's par par part of the conversation we're having in this country.
We have another one here. As the crisis unfolds and legislation funding big swaths of the workforce, is this essentially the biggest paid family leave event ever? Uh, I've actually been reading the news in part to to see that. Um, I think um, that's very possible, very very likely to be the case that this is the biggest paid family leave policy. Uh, sort of injection that our country has seen so far. And the other very closely tied policy is paid sick leave. Um, so the idea behind paid family leave is that you're providing care for a family member, either a new child or your sick family member. But then there's also paid sick leave, which is leave for yourself when you're sick. And that, you know, we didn't cover that today. And maybe that's a, a conversation for the future. Um, but, uh, but there's also that related policy to see how that affects employer health and likelihood to return to work. And, and these days there's just a lot of talk about that. Um, so yeah, I think we're, we're likely going to see some of the biggest jumps, um, the biggest increases in people benefiting from these policies in the coming weeks. Um, and, and yeah, we'll have to see how that goes. And I think the policies that they're discussing now, um, would provide those benefits for a year, um, and depending on what kind of evidence we see for those in the coming year or, or, or how people feel about having those benefits, there's a chance that maybe we could start having that conversation in this country about having those policies uh, be in effect in the long term. All right, so then the next question, why is America so far behind? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> I think. There's people who study policy making itself rather than the effects of policies, and I think that would be a question for them. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think there, there's a lot of different hypotheses. The fact that for a lot of these benefits, you know, including things like health insurance, that a lot of time in the U.S., the employers are the one to take that on, and so then it's left to the individual employer to sort of balance the benefits of their workers receiving this benefit versus the cost to them. Whereas in a lot of countries, again, it's done at the national level. Um, so then you can sort of take the long view of improving the entire population's health rather than just thinking about like you're a handful of workers and if they leave, then you can just replace them. Um, that might be um, one thought. Um, and there's always a lot of talk about differences in values of individualism um, versus a more community uh, view of things um, in other countries. I think there's just a lot of historical reasons that that I'm, you know, I'm probably not the most most qualified person to talk about the why of why the policy landscape is the way it is. So the next question, to what extent is your research and that of other people who study paid family leave being shared with policymakers? Um, that's a great question. So that's a lot of the reason that I do research um, and that a lot of uh, health researchers and economists do this kind of research is that they are trying to inform policy. And there's different ways that we can get that information to policymakers. Um, UCSF, for example, has um, the, the media office that um, communicates these findings to the media. And the idea is that's one way to get to both the public and policymakers to help people understand the effects of these policies. We also have a government relations office. Um, and increasingly in the last year or two, I have been talking to them um, and they help us put together policy briefs to share with policymakers. And of course, we're an academic institution. So the idea is not that we say, you should pass this policy or you know, the, the policy should, should contain this. What we say is, we have studied these past policies and we have found that the effects are XYZ and, and leave it at that. And um, 
and just so they can incorporate that information moving forward. Um, and I, um, this isn't as much of what I do, but there are other researchers who also work with community organizations um, to, to inform them in the same way that we would inform policymakers to let them know about how they can take action in their community to improve population health. I'll say though that for um, the last, the study that I just presented the results of, the, that, that second study, that one actually came out in a journal earlier this week and I actually contacted our press office um, to let them know and to see if they wanted to, to put anything out about this and they turned me down and they said the entire media office right now is focused on, on COVID-19. So, so um, it depends on the, you know, sometimes the media office doesn't see uh, the results as being important at a given point in time. So then that often makes it harder to pass along. And then <clears throat> another question, are there tangible things we all can do, especially amidst the current crisis, to help decision makers apply these studies to influence the new normal that will likely emerge as our work world gets reinvented? Um, you know, as a, as in, this is sort of more a personal comment, but I think as citizens, um, it's good to be in touch with your policymakers. I have my uh, House representative and my uh, senator, senators programmed into my phone now. I've done this in the last couple of years um, to let them know um, whatever your, you know, inclinations are about, about where the policy uh, landscape should go. You know, we as citizens have that opportunity and almost responsibility, really. Uh, when it comes to policy, so that's sort of personally, um, and um, and you know, and, uh, I'd say that's probably one of the most tangible things you can do. I'm open to other suggestions. You know, I, I think different people have different ideas about community organizing and and that sort of thing, depending on what your um, personal status is in your community and your workplace. So one question, is there a correlation between the rise in anti-abortion legislation and the rise of paid family leave legislation? So I, I, I'm not sure. I think these types of legislation happen in different states. Uh, if you think back to that map that I showed you guys, uh, where paid family leave policies have been passed, um, they tend to be maybe exclusively along the coast. Um, and I, I don't study anti-abortion legislation, but just from keeping up with policy more generally, my impression is that that tends to happen um, not along the coast. Um, so I don't think that that is probably affecting policymakers within the same state. Um, but I'll say, you know, there there is a lot of work out there by uh, political scientists that does talk about how state policymaking is being increasingly uh, polarized, um, and especially as the federal government in recent, not just recent couple of years, but in recent decades, takes less action on social policies, economic policies, health policies, that a lot of states are filling those gaps. And so that does allow for a lot more polarization in policymaking. Do we have evidence from countries where paid family leave replaces a higher percentage of income that doing so reduces the subgroup differences you found? Um, so there are a handful or probably quite a few more international studies that look at the effects of paid family leave policies, mostly in European countries, to see what those effects are on health. I'm actually not sure that I've seen any of them 
do subgroup analyses like we did here, where we look at differences by income levels or by race. You know, importantly, policies in other countries, uh, especially high-income countries, I'll say most of the other evidence is from high-income countries rather than low- and middle-income countries. And in those countries, wages are pretty much uniformly replaced 100%. So people don't just get part of their salary while they're out. They get their whole salary. Um, and everybody who works is eligible. Um, it's not that, you know, it's dependent on where you work or, you know, even the California and New Jersey and other state policies, there's still some rules like the size of your employer or how long you've worked or, you know, whether your employer pays into the state disability fund, that sort of thing. Um, and in other countries, essentially, it's, it's a universal benefit. Um, and that might be why researchers in those other countries haven't thought to look for these disparities, just because the, I think they're less likely to arise in that situation when a benefit is applied universally. Um, but that would certainly be something to look at. And I haven't seen, I mean, I think there's probably very few studies looking at paid family leave policy in low and middle income countries. Again, you saw on that map, every other country in the world Ha, you know, including low and middle income countries, has a paid family leave policy at the national level for employees. Um, I think there's just been very little research done in low and middle income countries. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.